go ahead and call it to order at 430. Yeah. Uh, I guess, uh, Kent, uh, if we want to do alternates. Yeah, I think we've got Ruthina Malone here uh, for Lori Rotland of the Iowa City Community School District. Uh, Eleanor Dilks is here for Susan Mims of Iowa City. And I believe that is all. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, uh, we'd like to consider approval of the meeting minutes. So moved. Second. And a second. Any discussion? Okay. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed, no. All right. Uh, okay, we'll set uh, the next board meeting date, time, and location. Looks like January 29th, tentatively. Yeah, unless that presents a major problem for the yeah. board, we've got our, our budget and a bunch of other administrative things to take care of in January, so that would be our preference. I don't hear any big objections, so I'm sure that will work. Uh, moving on, we've got uh, any public discussion of any items not on the agenda? Pretty small it, crowd today for public. Yeah, if there's none uh, from the public or before the public speaks, uh, I would like to take just a minute uh, to recognize two outgoing board members and thank you for their service to the MPO. Uh, Lori Rotland. Uh, Lori's been on the board for two years and she is an outgoing member for the Iowa City Community School District uh, as their representative. And then Rockney Cole, uh, neither could make it tonight, uh, but Rockney Cole has been on uh, the MPO board for four years. And uh, thanks to both of them for their service and we'll make sure they get their certificates. Great. All right. Thanks, Kent. Um, okay, moving on into the administration, we've got appoint nominating committee for the calendar year 2020 urbanized area policy board. Yeah, thanks. Kent Ralston, uh, executive director. At your next meeting, which will be in January, uh, you'll elect a chairperson and vice chairperson for the 2020 calendar year for the urbanized area policy board. Uh, as you know, the chairperson uh, is responsible for presiding over the meetings, and the chairperson, as well as myself, uh, are also responsible for signing documents and things throughout the year. Uh, as director, it's been my practice to either meet with the chair or at least give them a call prior to the meetings to see if there's anything we need to discuss. And then, of course, the vice chair presides over meetings, uh, and we have that same discussion uh, if he or she uh, will be presiding over the meeting. Uh, what we'd like uh, from the group tonight is that you please consider appointing a three-person nominating committee uh, for the chair and vice chair for 2020. Uh, the nominating committee will then report at our next meeting uh, where the chair and vice chairpersons will be uh, nominated. Uh, as you know, uh, Steve Berner, Mayor Tiffin, is our current chair, and Terry Donahue, uh, Mayor of North Liberty, is the vice chair. Uh, both uh, Mr. Berner and Mr. Donahue have served for two years in their current capacities, and our bylaws restrict them from being in those capacities any longer. Um, so uh, without further ado, if there's three uh, people that would like to be on the nominating committee, uh, you can simply let us know. I'm also available for questions if there are any. Are you looking for volunteers right now? or Yeah, that'd be great, just by show of hand or anything else. We typically have, we try to get the three nominees to be, um, or the three persons to nominate to be from different communities, just so there's a little bit of a mix-up. Um, but other than that, there's no real restrictions on who can what kind be of on that committee. Not, what kind of time commitment does it? It, it isn't real it's complicated. Most of the time, I think it's handled either through emails or at a coffee shop, and it's simply sitting down and discussing who uh, should be the next chair and vice chair. Uh, last year, I believe it was worked out at this meeting, uh, so it was, it was done pretty quickly. 
I was on the nominating committee last year. It, it was, was very. It was done very quickly. It was record breaking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so not a big time commitment, and we really don't need to know uh, until a few weeks before our January meeting. Yeah. I'll, I'll volunteer. Perfect. So Tom Maza here, and any other takers? Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. And Aaron Shane. So I would just ask that you get together informally one way or another, uh, have that discussion. Um, I also, on the back side of the memo, included the past chairperson's list. Uh, there is no real rotation on who becomes chair or vice chair, uh, or if the vice chair becomes chair. There's really no um, restrictions as far as our bylaws are concerned. Uh, if you look at the list, I would say uh, just by terms of rotation, which there's kind of a rough rotation going here, North Liberty, University Heights, and the University of Iowa all kind of show up as, as getting down towards that, uh, sort of the top of the list, so to speak. But again, there's no, nothing the bylaws that says as much. So uh, I will reach out to the nominating committee here uh, in a few weeks and just see how things are going, and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, Kent. Uh, moving on to 3B, uh, to confirm which entities will nominate Johnson County representatives to the uh, East Central Iowa Council of Governments, Board of Directors. Yeah, thanks. Under the uh, MPO bylaws, each January, the Urbanized Area Policy Board appoints three elected official representatives to the East Central Iowa Council of Governments, Board of Directors, as well as one citizen representative. Uh, the citizen representative may be any Johnson County resident who is not an elected official. And the appointments are made according to the rotation that's identified in your memo. Uh, first, uh, one elected official seat is filled by the two largest entities, uh, which alternate every other year. Uh, the current representative is from Johnson County, so the 2020 representative is scheduled to be designated by the city of Iowa City. Uh, next, one elected official seat will be filled by the third through fifth largest entities who alternate again annually. Uh, the current seat is held by the fifth largest entity, which is the city of, of Solon. And the 2020 representative is scheduled to be designated by the city of Coralville. Uh, last, one elected official seat is elected from the remaining entities who alternate annually, and there's seven of the remaining small communities in Johnson County. Uh, the current seat is held by Lone Tree, and the 2020 representative is scheduled to be designated by the city of Tiffin. And then regarding the citizen representative, uh, Randy Lobsher is holding the current seat, uh, who is a Johnson County uh, resident. Uh, he has held the seat for two years, and there is no specified term limit in the bylaws for that citizen representative position. Uh, so I intend to contact Iowa City, Coralville, and Tiffin and request that they designate the official representative to the Board of Directors for East Central Iowa Council of Governments, which will be essentially ratified at your January meeting. And then what I would like from this group tonight is some direction on whether we want to ask Randy Lobsher to have uh, a third year uh, to East Central Iowa Council of Governments, or if I should advertise for that position. And again, there's no term limit for that. Um, I've not contacted Randy yet to ask him if he's interested. Uh, I know his attendance has been good. He was, uh, he's been giving us periodic updates once or twice a year um, about the happenings at ECOG, and I think he's doing a fine job. Uh, but I will take your direction on whether to give him a third year or to advertise for that position. If he's interested, I would say uh, have him continue because I was the representative two years ago and when and he was on it then and uh, he's well respected as you said his attendance is good he participated in the meetings and was always prepared uh, you could tell that he'd read the materials and mm -hmm. so he's, he's an excellent representative if he's willing to continue 
And I think the learning curve is, is at least a oh, year yeah. to two yes. years. So I think yes. uh, his knowledge now going in yeah. a little longer would also be another reason to keep him mm -hmm. if he'd still be there. So I If would that's agree. a motion, I'll second it. <laughs> so moved. Yeah. Okay, great. So I will contact Randy. Uh, if he's interested, we'll offer him another, another year. If he's not, we'll, of course, advertise for the position. Uh, and thanks for that. One other thing I wanted to mention, and I've not given this a lot of thought yet, um, Rod Sullivan is the current county representative, and he'll be coming off this year because Iowa City, it's now Iowa City's turn, the two largest entities alternating uh, every other year. Rod contacted me a couple weeks ago and had just mentioned uh, exactly what we just talked about with Randy, is that one year on the ECCOG board may not be long enough. You know, he said, I've just kind of got my feet wet, I'm learning what I'm doing, and now off I go. So he had asked uh, basically if there'd be an interest in looking at sort of how our bylaws are set up and how we designate folks to sit on the ECCOG board, to which I said, of course, uh, they're the board's bylaws and we can do with them what we will. What we just went through is it's a little bit convoluted, uh, but this was put in place, I think it was in 2011, the last time we had a major overhaul of our bylaws. And the idea was basically to get everybody in the county involved to the extent possible. I think some of the concern is that A, you're only on for one year and that's not long enough. The other is that for, for some of the small communities, it's hard for them to attend. And if they're having a hard time attending, and, and some communities do, some don't, um, but if attendance is difficult and they're only on the board once every seven years, is that really valuable for Johnson County as a whole? So these are just some things. Rod didn't have any specific suggestions. He said these are some things I've been thinking about. Um, the East Central Iowa Council of Governments has a new director. Uh, as of about a few months ago, Karen Kurt is the new director. Uh, I did go as far as to reach out to Karen and ask her for how other counties that ECOG serves uh, basically send their delegations to the board. And I've got some of that information. I've not really had a chance to synthesize it yet, but um, I'll do that. I think at our January meeting, um, we may want to have a discussion about this. Although the difficulty is, is that if we want to change the bylaws, um, the rural board also does that, right? So we're the urban board, there's also a rural board and they would have to weigh on, on that as well. They only meet once a year. It's in January typically. So I'm kind of noodling through how to deal with all that, but I'll have more information for you in January. Um, we can always hold a special meeting with the rural board if we need to mid-year, or we can be set up to make a change for the following year if we so choose. So just wanted to bring that up. Doesn't affect what happens this year so far, um, but I did let Rod know I'd at least bring it up and uh, kind of start noodling through that process. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, okay, uh, moving on, we've got 3C, which is preliminary discussion of the fiscal 21 budget. Yeah, thanks. Uh, prior to the preparation of the MPO budget for your consideration each January, uh, it's been my practice to basically discuss proposed changes uh, to the scope of services or, or services we're offering with the board. Um, as most of you know, administratively, the MPO is set up as part of the city of Iowa City and follows their budgeting procedures, including schedules for salaries and benefits and, and so on and so forth. Um, as noted in your memo, the focus and purpose of the MPO remains to fulfill state and federal requirements necessary uh, to receive state and federal transportation funds, uh, to produce professional studies to support transportation-related decisions and capital project selection, uh, to coordinate transit planning and transit reporting consistent with state and federal regulations, and that's for Iowa City Transit, Coralville Transit, as well as University of Iowa CAN bus, uh, to assist local entities with review of development proposals, which we've been very busy doing uh, in recent years, 
and then also to serve as a forum for other uh, regional issues and discussions uh, whenever necessary. Uh, preliminarily, it looks like capital expenses for FY21 will be ex are very similar to recent years. It's sort of a status quo budget, I would say. Uh, it includes a replacement schedule for traffic counting equipment and some of our software maintenance needs and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not proposing any changes to the MPO uh, level of staffing. Uh, we did that a few years ago and it's been working out very well. Uh, and I do anticipate about a 6.5% increase in the MPO's total budget. So. This year's budget was about $700,000, and at least preliminary, it looks like next year's budget will be about $740,000, $745,000, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, about 80% of that increase is uh, staff salaries and benefits, mostly health benefits. So uh, like everyone, the MPO uh, employees aren't immune to rising health care costs, and that was about 50% um, of the total uh, increase. Uh, we also will use about $230,000 of DOT funds, which we've done uh, for several years now. That's the, the planning level funds that are provided to the MPO. And then I also anticipate use, utilizing a little bit more of our internal funds, um, basically funds that we did not spend in the last few years. Uh, we had about $10,000 in internal carryover we used last year, and we've got about $30,000 this year we'll probably use, uh, which just defrays some of the assessments that all the communities pay. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have, at least at this point in time, and then we will be bringing back the full budget for you uh, for approval in January. Any questions about last year's budget? I did include last year's, uh, a few pages of last year's budget in the packet just so you could see that. And again, um, you know, about a 6% increase in total budget is what we're anticipating. Any questions? It makes it easier when they don't change a lot. Yeah. I've noticed. Not, not a lot of questions. Right. Okay. Right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Kent. Uh, moving on to transportation planning on 4A, consider action regarding safety target setting for the MPO as required by the Federal Highway Administration. Yeah, thanks. My last agenda item, then we'll let somebody else speak for a minute. Um, <laughs> as you may recall, the Federal Highway Administration now requires that MPOs set targets for five safety performance measures as part of the uh, Highway Safety Improvement Program and report them to the state DOT by February 27th of each year. Um, and in your packet, uh, there is a chart that shows what those performance measures are. For each measure, uh, we need to choose to either support the state's targets or we basically need to come up with our own targets. Uh, in either event, we're required to state how our annual projects programmed in our uh, transportation improvement program support the state's targets, uh, and we will also have to do the same in our next long-range transportation plan uh, that's due in 2022. Seems like a long way away, but we actually start that here in the next year or so. Um, similar to past years, I recommend that we again adopt the state's targets. I think this is the third year we've been required to do this. Uh, and if at any time we feel that creating our own local targets would be a benefit, we can, of course, do that before February 27th of each year. Um, but similar to past years, I'll tell you, we just don't see a clear benefit to doing so at this point in time. Um, I've attached some supporting information from the DOT for your reference. And the Transportation Technical Advisory Committee did uh, unanimously recommend adopting the state's targets uh, at their meeting last week. Um, I, if there's no questions, we'll be looking for some direction from the board, but I did want to point out that in that chart, uh, there's some positive news, is that the fatality rate and the serious injury rates are both down. So the total number of fatalities and serious injuries, of course, are up because we have more vehicle miles traveled, but the actual rate is heading in the right direction, uh, which is positive. 
Uh, and again, I'm happy to answer any questions. Otherwise, we'll look for direction on the board uh, to adopt the state's targets or come up with some of our own targets here at the MPO. What is the definition of serious injuries? So I think a serious injury, um, I think the easiest way to state it is one where you are taken to a hospital. I think is it's it, the way that is coded is by the police that are actually on the scene. So it's the actual collision report. And I think if you are transported to the hospital, it's always considered a serious injury, um, whether they really know that or not. And I think that's the best way they can do that. Minor injuries, I think, when you're, you know, you're scraped and you're scratched and you're shaken up a little bit, but you say you're okay and, you know, you, you go on. When I see levels of confidence, I really don't understand how they're applied. It's like on number three, number of serious injuries, year forecast, 70%, 75, 80. I couldn't get it through my thick skull how that is. What page is that on, Terry, in the, in the attached information? I mean, regarded the rest of them too. So for the serious injuries, yeah. So the way they do that is, let's see here, which line's which. One is the, the actual number of serious injuries and one is the predicted. And then when you get out to sort of the night, well, it's a little bit hard to read, but once you get out to 2020, the computer is actually, it's, the model is actually modeling what they think it will be and that's what they're setting those targets at. I mean, that's, <coughs> So in, lay, in layman's terms, that's how they're doing it. So they, basically that relates to really confidence level of, right. of the... Th yeah. <clears throat> okay. They're working on averages. I don't know what the actual confidence... I'm sure it's in here, what the actual confidence is in these, but... Uh, looks like 75% is what they're using. It looks like at the bottom of page four. Doesn't sound all that confident to me, to be honest. But I think historically, if you look at what they're modeling and what the actual numbers are, it's doing a fairly good job. Sorry, I can't answer your question better, Terry. You did all right. Ken, on, um, I know we probably don't have much data here to, to uh, look at, but I was just thinking of, um, you know, usually I suspect these collisions tend to take place on our major roads, our major thoroughfares. And one that came to mind, you know, so, so the question I was thinking of was where we've, where we've taken measures to try to address collision rates and reduce them, um, where has that happened, you know? And, and so one example that came to my mind would be Mormon Trek. And I, I don't remember how long that, that's been in effect, but do we see, can you tell even at this point if collisions are down? So with respect to four to three lane conversions like right. on Mormon Trek, thus far, I would say no, we don't really know if they're working. Only because we've got a ton of data before, you know, right. because both uh, First Avenue, Mormon Trek and Iowa City, I think you're all probably familiar, but were four lane facilities are now three lane facilities, one lane in either direction with the center turn lane, mm -hmm. and then we've added bike lanes on both corridors, which is sort of irrelevant for this, but um, for First Avenue, we had, I think, one full year in Iowa City, one full year of post-conversion data, 
and it was about a 25% reduction in all okay. collisions. So there's a good example. Which is about what we expected. However, I would caution you that that's only one post year of data. You know, hopefully it gets better than that. Um, mm -hmm. And for Mormon Trek, it just really finished up this year. So we really haven't had enough post uh, post construction data to really get a, mm -hmm. a good feeling for that. Um, but the data would suggest that somewhere between 20 and 30 percent might be a good range you know maybe even a little higher in some instances but i think when we spoke to the iowa city council about changing those it was about a 25 percent reduction right. is what we were hoping for and do we know what what's happened with the speeds on mormon trek yet have you measured that we don't but we will soon okay. the speeds on i do know the speeds on first avenue are down mm -hmm. we have uh when we collected the the collision data we also collected some speed data and the speeds in both directions were down pretty substantially oh okay yeah you can only drive as fast as the person in front of That's you right. now, which is what's, what's <laughs> Self helping Self-regulating that. that way. Right. And I can get you that. We've got that data, so I can get you that. Super. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Any other questions about this one? Otherwise, you are looking for action on this, right? Yeah, and, and as I mentioned, the, the Technical Advisory Committee unanimously recommended we adopt the state's targets again, which I think will be the third year. Um, I believe Des Moines might be the only, and not that this matters so much, but I think Des Moines might be the only one that's either considering adopting their own targets or already have. I'm not sure which one. Um, most MPOs are adopting the state's targets just because it's, I think, labor-intensive to come up with your own targets and then... If we're already working towards reducing collisions and, and making things safer, I don't know that a lot of MPOs have seen a lot of value in making your own separate target. I move that we uh, adopt the state's safety targets. Motion. Okay, we have a motion and a second. Any other discussion? Could I just ask real quick, why is Des Moines considering making their own targets? Uh, I don't know for sure. That's a good question. Um, Des Moines spends a lot of time doing things that, that other MPOs don't, and I think that's because Des Moines is a, they're a, um, they're a standalone MPO, so they have a little bit more staff and a little more resources than a lot of us do, and I think for all intents and purposes that might be the reason. I mean, they literally just have more time to kind of hone in on these things, and they do a really nice job with a lot of their plans, um, but I think that might be the reason. Follow-up question: a simple, How much different are their targets than what the states have been in the past? If they've been, if they've been doing this, uh, well, the targets would clearly be different. For instance, you know, the number of fatalities would be not 345, as you know, that's the state's total. So I don't know what they are. Um, I don't know what they've actually come up with. But whether they're meeting them or not, I think is the question, and I don't know the answer to that either, okay. to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's not a very good answer, that's Chris. Sufficient. Yeah. Any other discussion? All right, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed, no. All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Kent. Moving on, we've got 4B. This is an update on the Metro Area Bike Master Plan, and you're ready to go. Hi, I'm Sarah Walls, uh, Associate Transportation Planner with the MPO. Um, many of you know that we're updating the um, Metro Area Bike Master Plan. This plan is different than the 2009 plan, which was the last time we adopted a Metro Bike Plan. You probably know that Iowa City um, went on its own to adopt its own master plan um, for bicycling. Um, that's due to the sort of density of bicycling that we have uh, related to the university in downtown Iowa City. And so this master plan looks at North Liberty, um, Coralville, Tiffin, and University Heights primarily, but it does look at continuity with things that are happening 
in the county and in Iowa City. Um, happily, uh, Coralville and North Liberty are very proactively building upon um, their robust off-street trail system and the system of side paths, which are the wide sidewalks that are along roadways. And so this basically reflects what already exists in um, their plans. Um, there were a few suggestions in communities, but it's basically building on that. And then it's looking at, uh, the plan looks at um, all of the programs and policies that support bicycling. So um, everything from um, youth education to um, wayfinding to um, making sure that the, um, the regulations between communities um, are in general agreement or at least not in conflict. So it picks up on all of those things. We've been working with this, with uh, uh, representatives of the Regional um, Trails and Bicycling Committee for the last year, and now we will have an open house on November 20th where the public can come in and look at recommendations. Um, the draft of the plan is also posted on the MPO's website. I should say that one of the most exciting things and one of the things that the plan looks forward to in the next five years is the connection of the regional trail system to Tiffin, which will open up a lot of opportunities. Um, it will make us all feel like one connected metro, and so a lot of the um, projects and rides that um, um, bicycle organizations and other organizations sponsor can now connect to Tiffin in a way that they haven't been able to before. Then outside the metro, um, Johnson County is completing its connections um, from the regional trail system to the north to Lynn County, which connects into the Cedar River, uh, Cedar Valley Trail, um, which connects all the way up to Waterloo. So that is an opportunity um, to bring bicyclists in and opens up opportunity for um, bicycle tourism. And in the last year, actually last two years, the um, Convention and Visitors Bureau has really taken an interest in this in promoting bicycle activities, um, the trails that go through all of our communities and the events. So I think we're gonna see in the next five years a lot of really exciting things happen and being connected to Tiffin is um, probably one of the most exciting things in the metro area to make us feel all like one community. So any questions about that? Well, I'd encourage you to take a look at the draft plan that's up, and then if you can attend the um, November 20th event, which is at um, Van Allen Elementary in, in North Liberty. Any questions? Doesn't sound like it. Thanks for the update yeah. on that. Uh, okay, moving on to 4C. This is an update on the MPO trail count program. Yeah, so the, the board doesn't usually get to see this, but we wanted to just make you aware, and this is something that we work on again with the Regional Trails and Bicycling Committee, and there are members from each community um, um, on, on that committee. Um, every year we, uh, we do counts along um, our regional trails and um, side paths and also some of the local, more localized trails and side paths. And that's a list that's approved by the Regional Trails and Bicycling Committee. We have about 20 to 30 points that we count and we do them in rotation. We try to get a count every um, second or third year on important trails. Um, obviously, there are things that influence um, how many bicyclists are biking. And I should say that we measure those basically from May to October. So each of those points will be measured for a week long period 
during good weather, um, prime bicycling weather. Uh, uh, um, however, the weather changes from year to year and from week to week, and so um, weather has an impact, road closures um, or openings, um, uh, additional uh, connections to the trails and side paths have an impact. So we don't so much um, focus on the numbers um, for any individual year, any um, two years, but we sort of look for trends over time. And bicycling along um, um, the regional trail system, especially places like the um, North Dubuque Street Trail is a, is a good example, and connections all the way down to um, Terry Trueblood Recreation. Those are growing. We're seeing a trend that more and more people are bicycling along those areas. So um, it's just something that we we keep track of and we look for a positive trend over time and so that's what we've presented to you is is those places where we did account this year and showing the trends that we have so far along some of our trail sections we have almost a decade's worth of data others um, just a few years this is great Fabulous. It helps for operational and infrastructure improvements over time and yeah, allocating those dollars. So I'm impressed. This yeah. is cool. So hopefully it's a number two that communities can use um, with grant writing or with other promotions um, for the community. So. How accessible is this data? I, I agree that this is really terrific. We, we know this is um, policymakers in the county over the last five, ten years that this has been important, but to Put a number to this and say that it's getting used um how accessible is this data is this something that we can share yeah look in on it and we can provide you um if you wanted to email me okay. um we can provide you with counts that we have at other points in your community maybe we didn't take a count there this year but we can give you past information and i should say you know one of the folks on our technical advisory committee had asked about you know is this you know sort of an annualized and it's not it's we're just count this is just meant to be reflective of during good weather because we know that for example right now there probably aren't a lot of bicyclists out on a majority of the trails though they'll cer you'll certainly find them on some but but this is reflective of during the bicycle season which we sort of say is roughly May to October on an average day that is probably what you'd find along that trail yeah, we typically don't ask the board for locations where you might want counts, but there's no reason the board can't let us know where you want counts. We typically ask the technical advisory committee. Um, this year, we even put uh, trail counters on Coralville's uh, single track trail right. um, off of, uh, well, near Camp Cardinal, and uh, we left them there for about a month. So we're even yeah. getting data on some of the off path uh, paths now. And I should say that Johnson County now has its own counters that are similar to ours. and. And um, I, I know that I heard from Brad Friedhoff that at one point up near in the far north along the trail system, I think they had a, a thousand riders, something like a thousand riders in one day or one weekend. So, you know, when I talk about those connections for the regional trail system and tourism, I mean, it's, it's really growing. There's a lot of interest. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the commuter trail, you know, the, the trail First Avenue, the, we're putting back that, the bridge over the Clear Creek see what the count is you know on first avenue and then when we put that trail back into um, the rocky shore drive how the commuters will get on that yeah. and that's a and perfect then, example yeah. i think is that that's really a vital trail connection right. that's being replaced and yeah. we would expect 
that with all of the growth in residential development along that corridor, right. that, that that trail, rather than riding on the wide on, sidewalk, on, is really right. much favorable and is a really easy commute right. over to the university campus. So that is one that we'll be keeping track yeah. of. Okay. Sarah, how much do these counters cost, these trail counters cost? Okay. And do you have any do you have any numbers for the the off season? Or I mean just an idea we, of how much the they're used. We haven't been doing counts in the off season, but we have offered that to in certain areas but but we don't have any like historical data on that. But it is something that we can do if communities want, we can leave well, them well, out. Another interesting spot is nine sixty five out by the uh, the classification center where we're with North Liberty that's going to be um, it'll it's paved this this year that's going to be clean year-round so that will be a commuter link um, uh, it will be a community like North Liberty to Coralville so right. that, that's another one yeah, and I should be clear that when we count, so it will it's counting both pedestrians and bicyclists, so it won't differentiate. But it is the use of that multi-use right. uh, trail. Yeah. Is it directional? No. Do you ever get into the purpose of why people are using it? Is it for like recreation or for work or? Um, no, we can look at weekend versus weekday, um, which might give you some idea, um, but no. Uh, we haven't been able to do that. You know, the other the other thing we do, um, we also collect the same data where we actually we actually differentiate between bikes and peds and whether the bike is on the street or the bike is on a sidewalk with all of our uh, intersection counts. So this is all midstream sort of uh, you know wide sidewalk slash trail counts. But we also collect that data for all of our intersection counts, and we have hundreds of them. And we've been doing that for. Oh, maybe the last 10 years or so, we've added that into our accounts. So we do peak hour counts for all of our other studies, signal analysis, roundabout analysis, always stop studies, that sort of thing. Um, but we actually have been doing that for about 10 years too now. And that is directional. Um, so we know which direction folks are traveling uh, at intersections. Yeah. So we've got a lot of data. Good. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Um, we got 4D. This is an update on the Crandic Phase 3 passenger rail study. Brad? Yeah, um, the Phase 3 passenger rail study is back on track, so to speak. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> uh, it was supposed to be concluded, I think, last December, December of 2018. So it's a little past due. Um, the issue was the ridership model and the methodology that would be accepted by the Federal Transit Administration. Uh, that's been worked out. Uh, we need that to be accurate as possible in order to develop the uh, financial forecasts that are required uh, for any future grant application through FTA. So they had to approve that. Um, there's a special onboard survey that has begun. I think it's two or three weeks worth. Uh, we'll have people riding buses. Uh, the, the consultant will have people riding buses doing surveys and um, and it's mainly on routes that serve the University of Iowa. So they're obtaining uh, origin destination information, but they're paying special attention to really four routes. Um, the Canbus Research Park route, and then three routes in Coralville. It's 10th Street, Express, and the Lantern Park routes. Uh, these are routes that serve uh, the same travel market as the proposed passenger rail would. 
So that's what they're concentrating on. They plan on gathering 12 to 1300 surveys, so it's considerable. Um, the, the issue we had originally with the original contract, um, we thought that this work would be included in the contract. The consultant informed us otherwise, and so there was additional funding required to complete it. That was the hang-up, uh, that and the FTA approval. Um, Iowa DOT and the Cranick Railroad stepped up and are paying for the additional survey work, um, and that's so that's that's where we're at right now. So hopefully by January, February, we'll have the numbers we're looking for, and we'll bring that back, and then there'll be some more discussion. So any questions on that? Yeah, I just want to elaborate just just one thing too. So Brad mentioned it, but there's no additional cost to any of our MPO communities. Uh, Brad was very polite when he said that we thought the you know that the the survey was included in the original contract. It was included in the original contract, uh, but the consultant disputed that. Cranick Railroad and the DOT just said we'll just let it be and we'll end up covering the extra cost. So there's no extra cost to our communities, um, but I, I think we had a we had a difference of opinion on what was actually in the contract with the DOT and Cranick. But it's all going to work out at the end. Uh, and as Brad mentioned, we should get this a little bit after the first of the year. How much was that extra expense for this survey? I, we never saw the numbers, but I think they're in the neighborhood of about $100,000. The entire contract was only $100,000, so they literally doubled the contract amount. Um, I, it was of my opinion that probably the, you know, the, we may have wanted to take legal action, but I don't think the DOT and Cranick wanted to do that. So um, we're a little bit out of the picture now, uh, as far in so far as that goes, but. Um, we'll get the full study done, hopefully not too long after the first of the year, and we'll just be a little bit behind schedule. Great movement forward. Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Brad. All right. Other business. Uh, an update from Johnson County staff on significant community projects. Good evening, everybody. I'm Greg Parker, Johnson County Engineer. I prepared a 45-minute PowerPoint presentation. I know your time is valuable, so thank you for allowing me to come in and chat with you. Uh, what I'm passing out to you as you get around, I have two sheets. I believe I did this last time that I was here. Two sheets are, this is our five-year road program. This document here, it's in that Excel spreadsheet format. It is tied to the map. This document here, so they are tied together, and I have to tell you, I'm glad that I have 11 by 17 because I can see it better. So you wouldn't like the 11. It's too tiny, too small. Okay, so what I'd like to do is, if we get these around, I'll wait a minute. These documents are available on the Johnson County website through the secondary roads area. Go into the five-year road program. If you have a computer and access, you can find it now. Or a phone or whatever you have in front of you. I brought 14 copies, and I'll leave this if somebody wants it. So I think I've counted that right. When you go to the secondary road, where is it at? 
Johnson County Secondary Roads Department, and then it should be a tag and a left side five-year road construction program, and you should have both documents available there. I think the drafts were pulled down. We didn't realize that the approved documents weren't on there, so I, last I was told, they were all good to go. Okay, everybody has it. Everybody got the spreadsheet and <coughs> the map. Everybody's good. So I need a map, yeah. I think we got shorted one over here. So there. if you look at the I'm spreadsheet, um, on the left side, you'll see five-year ID at the top of the page on the left side. And each one of those, it says 19 A, B, C, D, E. And you go down and it'll M, 19, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 20 A, B, C, D, E. So the, the number designates the year that we're planning for that construction to take place. Mm -hmm. They are not in order of any specialized project. We just listed them the way they are. So if you see your project is number one, it purposefully was not put there for that reason. Um, otherwise, the, if we based on the year, if you look on the left side of that document, you'll see fiscal FY19 slash 20. So that covers the current fiscal that we're in, the summer construction 1920, and it also can carry into the spring of our fiscal 20, and our fiscal runs from July 1 to June 30. Pretty standard. We have the first five on this document, the first five that are on here. I have to explain this to you because it takes just a couple minutes. These are by funding source, the, the just the plain black and white ones are funding. The green ones are by bond, which the board is bonding for those construction projects. The purple ones are what we're doing in-house with our maintenance staff. So maintenance reconstruction program or rehabilitation program. This is what our maintenance people do and so on. So we have one should be five years on here. This would be the immediate year would be the first white, green and purple. We go white, green and purple. So it defines the funding source and the year that we're planning to do the construction. Now I'm gonna jump you to the map, pretty simple. If you look at the first document, 19A, the first line, you'll find 19A on the map, and that shows you the location of that project. So if you're looking for 19A, bear with me, I don't have these down either. 965 North. There you go, <laughs> 19A. So that would be a project of interest to this group because it is near and dear to everybody's hardest part of construction. Unfortunately, it did not get uh, accomplished. We, this was a very ag aggressive construction schedule for my department. We had almost $20 million of construction, which is phenomenal for us. And uh, it is planned for spring lighting. So some of those expenses will come out of our 20 fiscal, but it'll carry over to the next fiscal because it will be completed after June 30. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. So from a organization standpoint, do you have any questions about how these two documents are set up? You'll just have to hunt and find where the 19As, the 20s, the 21s, and the 23s. But this is our construction program that has been approved and adopted by the Board of Supervisors. It is done annually in March. We have to have it submitted to the DOT on or before April 15th, which we do. So that's why in March we have the Board approve this. So next year, coming up, pretty short, is we will be adding another year of construction of projects to this list. So stay tuned, check the website, and you can get that all updated for the draft and the, and the process before it's approved by the board, which is done typically in March, end of March. 
projects of interest to us, Highway 965, I just explained that one, that would be 19A. And I'm going off the immediate year that we're currently in, so that would be the top of the spreadsheet. Uh, we have a couple of bridges, Ely Road 505, that will be a spring letting. Uh, it's a phenomenal complex project, lots of environmental issues on that, and we're dealing with the core, and we've worked all those differences out. We're looking at a spring letting for that project. The 140th Street project, this is the Sutliff Road, completed, done. Another bridge, completed. Now we jump into the green projects, 19F. 120th Street project, this runs from Highway 965 West all the way to the county line. That project, we did get our intermediate course on, but we had to shut it down. This year was not a good construction year. I'm sure you guys are all aware of that. I mean, it rained until, what, the end of June, and then we get a short window of construction, and then Mother Nature hit us, what, a couple weeks ago. So not good for us. We had to shut the project down. We needed another week to finish that to get the surface course on. Isn't going to happen until next year at this point. So it's kind of the same thing I'm sure you're hearing from your public works directors. Just not a good construction year. Uh, jumping on forward, Herbert Hoover Highway, that phase one of three. And this is from Interstate 80 East to Wapsie. We decided to combine one and two, phase two together as one project so we can shorten the construction timeline to two years instead of three. And uh, so that phase one will be pushed out and phase two, the next green project and the next group year, those two will be tied together. So we're, we're looking at a February lighting timeline. It'll be a full construction season next summer. Let's see here, old 218 River, well that was a project 923, it's over by the county fairgrounds, that was accomplished this summer, hopefully everybody's driven it and they love it because it's way better than what it was and we're glad that the board uh, had us put that on the five year road program, it was direly needed, sp specifically due to all the activity that's taking place out there with the jingle cross and the bike rides that are taking place, so it was a very nice addition, that was a joint project with Iowa City, <coughs> excuse me. And then the uh, purple projects, again, as I referenced, those are done in-house. And these also are listed on the map. So if you look southeast Iowa City, several of those projects were completed this summer. Some were not. Uh, the north project up by Shuaville was not completed. We got all the pipes done, but we just couldn't get the rock down. So we'll have to wait till next year to get that done. So jumping into forward years, would anybody have any questions about anything that would be you would have a question on near to dear to your heart or have an interest in discussing? Well, if no questions or uh, I, hopefully this is all laid out pretty simply and easy to understand, that's our goal. And again, the documents are available on Johnson County website. I think you said you found them. When I touched it, it says this site can't be reached, so I don't know. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I, I know it's there. not secure. So we, we <laughs> almost there. No problem. But uh, if you do not have any question for me, that, that's pretty much what I had to report to you. We're, we're aggressive from a, a secondary road standpoint. We're very fortunate to have a board of supervisors that supports our operations. 
we will continue to do so as long as the funding is there and the staff can accomplish what we're expected to do. So seeing good things out there. It's crazy in Johnson County right now. I mean, it's wild. We're seeing cranes all over and busy year. It's going to be another busy couple of years ahead of us. Mm -hmm. That's all I have. Thank you. It's great Thanks, Greg. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. All right. Um, the last item on here uh, will be the Severson Charity Challenge or Severson. I think I said that wrong. Yeah, Severson. Linda Severson Charity Challenge. Um, Every year I come to talk to you all about this. Uh, for the past eight years, um, we've sponsored, the MPO has sponsored the Severson Charity Challenge in honor of Linda Severson, who was the MPO's Human Services Coordinator from 1994 until she passed away in 2011. Linda was known for um, her, uh, her charitable nature and for um, compelling other people to get involved in charitable works. And so this is a way to honor her. And so we've, we've done it for the last eight years and the criteria we've used for um, judging who wins the cup is the increase in giving over the previous year. Last year's um, winner was North Liberty. And so I'm just here to see if the MPO wants to continue on with that tradition. Sarah and I debated uh, <laughs> at some point in time, no one on the board will have worked with Linda, uh, you know, as time passes and we know everyone's got a, a thousand charitable events and donations and things they do. So um, we're happy to do as long as the, the board's happy to do it. Very good. Continue. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. All right. I think that's it, except for adjournment. So moved. Motion and a second. All right. All those in favor say aye. 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 We're adjourned. Thank you, everyone.